In the Old Testament, we read of kind of this calendar of festivals and events that Israel would celebrate. And then as we look at Israel's history, there were other celebrations and calendar events that were added to them that weren't necessarily commanded. But what this calendar did and what these events did was orient Israel to remember the redeeming love and work of God. So over and over again, a festival would be, you know, had so that Israel would remember God brought you out of Egypt, or they would have a festival at harvest time so that they would remember that God is the one who gives them harvest. These other territorial gods, these gods of fertility and these gods of harvest and grain, these gods are nothing. The God of Israel is everything, and he is the one who provides for you. So there's this festival at harvest time, and historically, the nation of Israel has read the book of Ruth during that time, and they they remember God is the God who meets our fertility and fallow fields and gives life. Now, I think that these calendars are really helpful because on our own, we try to become the God of our life and set up events that we want to think about, and we just orient our life to what we care about. And Israel was helped by having this, you know, religious calendar, in a sense, a liturgical calendar. And so Christians throughout the ages have operated according to a liturgical calendar as well. There are different events that call to mind the great redeeming work of God in the life of the church, in salvation. And instead of just identifying, you know, the God of Israel, we we think in terms of the Trinitarian God. And so on the Christian calendar, there are events that recognize each person of the Trinity. And during this time of year on the Christian calendar is, it's called Advent. And there are four weeks of Advent, and we've talked about this some. And on this third week of Advent, the theme that's celebrated is joy. That, that's what's brought to mind as we rejoice in the, the birth of Christ. Now, when I had planned out this Ruth series, I had thought, we'll do this in four weeks, and each week we'll connect to one of these major themes, and you're kind of working through the four books, and this would be a joyous week as Boaz agrees to redeem Ruth and and all of these sorts of things. Well, as is too common here, it got extended. So this Advent series is now just like, two months of Advent, if you want to think of it that way, as we think of Christ's birth. But we're in Ruth chapter one still. So turn to Ruth chapter one, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week. And we're going to work this still to fit because we're, we're going to see a woman who had occasion for great joy, and she responded with bitterness. And I think that this is instructive for us because there are occasions for joy in our lives in particular, the occasion of joy in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And we often forget about it and we often look on it and we distort it into some sort of secularized, you know, time of getting. And we often fail to recognize that we have great occasions for joy in our life. And instead of proceeding with joy and in having a way of being in this world that is filled with the joy of Christ, we're filled with bitterness. Now, as we look at these things this morning, I want to be careful to say that Christians are not, um, we're, we're realists, okay? We understand that there are hard things in life. There are challenges that we face. And that's why we sing songs that have words like, come bitter and broken. We, we recognize that we feel bitter and broken. 
We recognize that there are occasions of suffering in this life, and we don't gloss over those. The, the whole message of the Bible doesn't gloss over these. And we see these heroes of the faith, we might call them, who sin in great ways, who suffer really tough things. And we, I, I don't want to suggest, as I get into critiquing Naomi's bitterness, and as we did last week, that if you are feeling bitterness or you're feeling broken or, or that you're feeling sorrow, that there's something fundamentally wrong with you. No. Those things are indications that you are walking through a fundamentally broken earth as a fundamentally broken person, but there is hope in Jesus Christ. And I tried to draw our attention there at the end of last week that Jesus, the seed of the woman, so in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. There is the seed of the woman, Jesus, who deals with all of our brokenness and all of our bitterness in a way that we might never sense fully in this life. But he provides a kind of joy to his people that, that moves us through our bitterness and our brokenness with hope. And I think that's the difference between someone who <clears throat> is wrapped up in depression and someone who is, is in a dark time and walking through tough things. One has hope and the other one doesn't. And I want you to find your hope in Jesus and in the new humanity that he's creating in the resurrection that is to come instead of trying to find lesser hopes that you're going to cling to. We, we have Jesus. That's what we've sung about, this desire of nations, so that as we sense desires in our hearts that aren't being met in this world, we have a better end to our desire, and that's Jesus. And, and we keep finding deeper desire and deeper fulfillment of those desires in him. So I just want to preface what I'm going to say this morning with those comments because I don't want you to hear that if you've ever experienced bitterness or sorrow, that you're, you're a horrible person. I want to say, allow that bitterness that you sense to direct you to Jesus who says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden because that's where you'll find rest. Now, I think this is salient to what we're looking at because when Ruth is on her way back to Israel, along with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and her sister-in-law, Orpah, Naomi says, I, I cannot find rest for you, essentially. May the Lord find rest for you in the home of your husband, ostensibly a Moabite man. And, and she has this wrong view of being in the world that says life would be better in Moab for these two ladies, married to Moabite men who worship the Moabite god Chemosh than they would have in Israel, even if Naomi couldn't find rest for them in a home of a husband. And that's because our rest is ultimately found in God. And this is a theme that is carried throughout the Pentateuch. God rested on the seventh day of creation, Noah brought, was the one who would find rest as God executes judgment and brings salvation on the earth. There's the Sabbath that's instituted that gives us this a vision of Sabbath rest and an orientation toward looking for that final day of rest. And what we, what we need to understand is that Naomi, in her bitterness, is going to be shielded from seeing the true rest that's provided in Yahweh, the God of Israel's covenant. Right? But it, as we extrapolate from that and as we place ourselves in the story, we too are looking for a rest. And I think that's a right impulse to have, but we need to constantly remember that that rest is found in Christ alone. I want to draw your attention to where we left off. 
in Ruth 1, verse 15, where Naomi said to Ruth, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. Now, again, I, I am being fairly critical of Naomi. Not every person who reads this text is. And if you want to read a guy who actually looks really favorably at Naomi with all of these areas, sending her daughters-in-law back and her bitterness, there's a guy named Bruce Waltke who has written some really interesting things on this. But I'm going to suggest that we're, we need to look at Ruth, or sorry, at Naomi. I'm going to do that a lot here. We, we need to look at Naomi as someone who has violated the stipulations of the covenant, who has refused to let that hunger that's intended to lead her to humility and repentance have its way. And in, in her return to the land, she's not truly returning to Yahweh. So I'm looking at her critically. I, I'm suggesting that's how we ought to look at her and how the author intends for us to look at her. Uh, but no other, not everyone looks at her that way. But when she's sending Orpah and Ruth back to their people and their gods, we need to hear this within that covenantal context where God is going to bring blessing to the people of Israel and from them bless the other nations. God is setting himself up as the one true covenantal God of Israel, and he's seeking to dispel all other gods. So when we hear an Israelite suggest to these women that you're going to have better rest and blessing outside of God's land, apart from God's people and apart from the one true God, I think that we ought to look at this critically and, and we should actually be a bit disappointed in Naomi. Israel was supposed to witness God to the nations. She is discouraging a witness of God to the nations. And in fact, she's turning them back to gods of false nations. And in fact, this very nation in the book of Judges during the time of the Judges had actually worked against Israel and, and worked against God's purposes in this world. And what I think we need to do here is identify Naomi as one who is an ethnic Israelite, but is not a true Israelite. She, she is not operating as a person of the covenant. She is operating more like a Moabite than an Israelite. Okay, have that image of Naomi in your mind as we proceed here, because that contrasts with a non-ethnic Israelite who's about to act as the full embodiment of the Torah, the full embodiment of Yahweh God's hesed, this covenant faithfulness and steadfast love. A non-ethnic Israelite is going to look like an Israelite, and an Israelite looks like a non-Israelite. So we turn our attention then to Ruth's pledge to Naomi. Ruth replied to her in verse 16. She said, don't plead with me to abandon you. Naomi has appealed multiple times now, leave, go back to your home. Well, if we're looking at Naomi in the best light, we're, go we're going to say, well, maybe she has these ladies' best interests in mind. Well, Ruth looks at that and says, that would be abandonment. I'm not going to leave you, so stop pleading with me to abandon you. And as I suggested last week, one of Naomi's fears is that even if these two ladies came with her to Israel, they would marry off and their family allegiances would switch to a new mother-in-law. She would no longer be their mother-in-law. They would have a new mother-in-law. Well, as Ruth starts this pledge, she's saying, I am not going to abandon you. And I think we should hear this almost as a pledge to a future of celibacy and singleness. 
Ruth is saying to her, you didn't want me to come because even if we came, we wouldn't be willing to wait for your son to grow up and you're too old to have a son. Well, I'm not going to marry someone else. Instead, I'm going to remain faithful in covenantal loyalty to you and I'm going to care for you the rest of your life. So I'm abandoning all of my hopes. I'm abandoning all of my dreams. I'm, I'm going to put myself, because you're going to die before me, I'm going to put myself in a place where eventually I'm going to be in just a hard a spot as you. Because I will have no sons, I will have no husband, I will have no father, no male representative to provide for me and to protect me. So what Ruth is about to do here, we need to see as fully self-giving sacrificing all of her safety and provision and her whole future in order to remain steadfastly loyal and to show faithful love to her mother-in-law. She goes on, you know, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. So she's not willing to go back to her people, her land, her gods. Instead, she says, for wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. And again, this is in contrast to Naomi, who's telling her, go back to the home of your mother so that you can find rest in the home of a husband. Well, she's saying, I'm going to lodge where you lodge. I'm going to live where you live. I'm not going to find rest because I'm not going to find the home of a husband to live in. I'm going to live with you. I'm going to care for you. Then she goes on to say, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And of course, this is in contrast to Orpah, who went back to her people and back to her God, this this God, Kamosh. Now, for us to hear this rightly, I, I think we need to remember that in this ancient Near Eastern way of looking at the world, these gods were territorial, and they were connected to people and to land, and, and therefore, when we looked at Naomi's family, when they went to the land of Moab, it was as if they were going under the protection and provision of the Moabite god, Kamosh, in that god's land with that god's people. And, and that's who Orpah has returned to. Well, Naomi is, is going back to her god, but she's made it clear she's bitter towards that god. But Ruth is saying, I'm going to go to your people and to your god, and, and they're going to be mine. That's where I'm going to find my, eth- my, my identity. My ethnic or national and religious identity is going to be bound up in Israel and in Israel's God. Having said that, I don't think we should necessarily look at this as like a big conversion for Ruth. For all that we know, she's just adding Yahweh to the other gods that she may believe in and and just say, but this is the God I'm submitting to. It's his land that I'm going to live with and it's his people I'm going to live with. Uh, it's, It's hard to know exactly how she's processing these things, but throughout Christian history, Christians have looked at this as a great conversion of Ruth. And, and I don't think that that's altogether wrong because she's giving her greatest loyalty to the God of Israel and to the people of Israel. And she's saying in no uncertain terms, though I am not ethnically related to you, though I don't have DNA connecting me to you or to any other Israelite, I am going to live among those people as one of them. And I'm going to worship their God as one of them. 
And in that way, we can say she's denying all other gods authority and she's stopping her, her hope from going to any other god. She's stopping her service from going to any other god. And in that way, I think we can say Ruth is an Israelite indeed. She is a true Israelite here. And this will bear itself out later on in the story. This should help us understand that in God's working with humanity, even though there is this calling of the nation of Israel, there's always been a welcome for non-Israelites to enter into the blessing of God. We have that initially with Abraham where all nations will be blessed through him. And, and we see that here once again. And we should be cautioned then against thinking primarily in terms of God's redemptive work as an ethnic work. God's redemption transcends ethnicity or nationality and geography. And in fact, God's redemptive work is a work that's going on to bring the whole world into a new creation and to put it under the realm of God's rule. That, and that connects to the very initial creation of the world where they were to go forward and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth so that God's glory would cover the earth. That's what's going on here. And we see a foreshadowing of it with Ruth as she gives herself to the God of Israel. Now, in our context, uh, I, I think it's important for us to look at this and to remind ourselves once again that the United States of America is not the nation of Israel. And even if it were, Okay, it's not, let me be clear about that. But even if it were, God's redemptive plan has never focused on a nation alone, but it's been to spread his glory across, across the globe. So as American Christians, we need to flip that and say we're Christians in America and we witness God to the world as Christians and we invite people from all nations and tribes and tongues to enter into fidelity to the God of the Bible. And, and we see a prefiguring of that here. And we see the climaxing of that in Revelation chapter five, where every tribe and tongue and nation, these people who Christ has been slaughtered to purchase, stand before the throne of God. So I, I just am trying to make the point that we're seeing a, a foreshadowing of this in, in the person of Ruth. And we see an ironic foreshadowing because the, the person Naomi ought to have been a blessing to the nations. Well, now you have a nation who's going to be a blessing to an Israelite. That's a churning of things on its head. And God does this beautifully throughout the redemptive story. From, from the youngest sons being preferred over against the older to, to harlots being included into the line of the seed of the woman, we have throughout God's redemptive work, a calling of the bitter and the broken and the hopeless and the disenfranchised to find hope and value and meaning and purpose in life in God's plan. So like Ruth, if we are feeling hopeless, if, if we need a future, we're going to find that future in God alone. So I just want to encourage you to think in those terms and to allow this Christmas time to remind you that the hope of the world that meets our fears and our loss is found in Jesus Christ. And even as we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and we're reflecting on the first advent of Christ, we are prophetically singing of the second advent of Christ, where he will be with us once again, where we will dwell in his presence. And, and so unlike Ruth, we are not, um, we, we are not uh, giving up of everything that we are 
to go out with no promises that are offered to us. We have every promise offered to us in Christ, and so we can pledge our fidelity to God alone. Now, she continues, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. Okay, so she, she's saying this is lifelong. Where you die, I'm going to die. And it's significant that she adds on to this, and there will I be buried. What this does is show that her commitment to the God of Israel and to Israel extends beyond her commitment to Naomi. Okay, Un- unlike Orpah, whose commitment to her husband, Kilian, did not extend to her husband's gods and people beyond his death, Ruth's would. She would be an Israelite forever. Now, it's interesting to me that throughout the Old Testament, especially in the Pentateuch, and especially in Genesis, you have an emphasis on where people are going to be buried. So you have um, Abraham burying his wife in the promised land. You have Jacob who wants his bones to be buried in the promised land. You have Joseph, whose bones are supposed to be carried out of Egypt and buried in the promised land. And each of those declarations and requests are an indication of the faith that the God of Israel would center his redemptive work in that land and that he would give that land to his people just as he had promised. And so they're just saying, who I am in life and in death belongs to Yahweh. The, the God of Israel, who I am is given over to this covenant Lord in life and in death. And that's exactly what Ruth is doing here. In contrast to Ruth and to others who died outside of the land of Israel, Elimelech and Kilian and Malon, from all that we know, are buried in the land of Moab. They are buried outside of the land as those who are cut off from Israel. But Naomi is, is going back to the land with this woman who's saying, where you die, I will die. I will be an Israelite to my death and beyond. I will forever dwell in the land of the Lord. So once again, we, we have this non-ethnic Israelite who is functioning and looking more like an Israelite than anyone in Naomi's family has up to this point. She goes on then and says in verse 17, may the Lord punish me and do so severely. Uh, This is just a, uh, we call it a self-maledictory oath. Okay, a self-maledictory oath. And this occurs, this exact language or something very close to it occurs, I think, 12 times in the Old Testament. And um, it's, it's just saying, I am making this covenantal pledge to you and God is my witness that this must happen. And if I fail to do this, may God do, you know, thus to me and do so severely. The thing that they're, the judgment they're calling upon for God to render to them, if they fail to maintain their covenant obligation is so severe and so awful that it can't even be spoken. Okay. So that's, if, if you read it very literalistically, it, it's just may the Lord do thus to me and, and more. Well, she's just saying that may God call on me the worst judgment possible if I fail to live up to this and I fail to do this. Uh, and, and of course, God is not obligated to do that for her if she failed, but it's a statement of covenantal faithfulness that is in the highest, in, in, the, in the strongest of terms. 
And then she goes on to say, if anything but death separates you and me, you know, so may the Lord punish me if anything but death separates you and me. And some translations take this as if even death separates you and me. And I think that one's right. I like that translation better. And she's saying in this life and beyond, I am going to go to the land of your ancestors. I'll be collected with your fathers after my death. And, And that can't even separate us. The, the most evil thing possible can't separate us. I'm going to be that faithful to you. Um, I, I don't have control over that, but even that shouldn't separate us. Now, I, this, this pledge that Ruth has made to Naomi, I have talked about is a covenantal pledge. And there are a few reasons for thinking this. Uh, when, when Orpah left, Ruth clung to Naomi. And that's the language that's used in Genesis 1 when it talks about the man and the woman you know, clinging together. You leave your family, your, your father and mother, and you cling to your wife. And then this is also the language that is used in describing how Israel ought to connect to the God of their covenant. They ought to cling to him and to his laws. So this is a covenantal language. It's, it's giving up all other allegiances and commitments. And so th- this is covenantal in every way. There are stipulations, there are obligations that she's taking on. And then there's a curse of death if she fails to do it. This is a covenantal relationship. Now, I mentioned last week very briefly that modern commentators who are reading this text are interpreting it in terms of a homosexual relationship being developed here. Well, I, I want to just make you aware that people are saying those sorts of things, but they're doing it only through the, the modern sexual revolution lens. That would not have been possible to see it that way at other times in history, particularly because this is her mother-in-law and particularly because Ruth is being pictured as the embodiment of God's law in the embodiment of God's kindness and mercy. And this, that relationship would violate everything about God's law and kindness and mercy. And so it's imposing something on the text that people want to see that we see in our culture, but that would not have been read into this text at any other time. And I, I mentioned also that I think part of the, the impulse to do that is because uh, there, there's not a, an understanding of how God has created humans for deep covenantal relationships. There's a longing for it. And unfortunately in our age, it gets expressed only in sexual terms, but even there, there's no binding covenant that keeps people together. There's just that intimacy that's worked out in no covenantal keeping. Well, God created us for these covenantal relationships and he created men and women to be married and to to participate in a covenantal relationship that way. But he also created humanity to relate to each other in covenantal terms, in faithfulness and steadfast love. And and when when it rubs us the wrong way, whether it's a text like this talking about Ruth and Naomi or a text about David and Jonathan or other texts that talk about deep relationships, if that rubs you the wrong way and the only way you can hear that is in sexualized terms, I would encourage you to start reading the Bible in Genesis 1 again and start thinking about how God made people to relate to one another in ways that are not foundationally sexually expressive, but instead expressions of faithfulness and love and commitment and self-giving that promote life and flourishing in the lives of another 
even when it comes at the detriment of the self. So, so if, it's, if you run into people who think about it th that way, or um, if, if you are thinking about it that way, uh, don't. Think instead in terms that God has instilled in us a capacity to love intimately and sacrificially and deeply without perversion or corruption or distortion. And we see that visualized here with Ruth. And I don't think it's wrong for us to reflect on the way that our culture would read this text because it's that sort of relationship that's happening in the time of the judges. It's that sort of faithfulness and steadfast love that's violated over and over again, particularly in the treatment of women as you read the book of Judges. Well, that kind of relationship and treatment of people is a violation of God's instruction in his law. So we should, I think, look at Ruth as an example of one who loves sacrificially and selflessly and purely, and she does so as an example of God's kindness to us. In verse, well, if you hear a covenantal pledge like this, throughout the Bible, if someone makes a covenant, you expect the other person to reciprocate. As Ruth's giving this self-giving pledge that's ending all of her hopes and dreams and eventually positioning herself to be just as vulnerable and uncared for as Naomi. And then when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. Silence on the way. Now, Last week I mentioned that I thought it was a bit odd that uh, they had already started on the journey back to Israel, Ruth and Naomi and Orpah, when, Ruth, when Naomi stops them and tells them to go back. And I suggested there perhaps it would be nice if they hopefully hadn't gotten too far out of the land of Moab before she sent them back. Uh, but here we get the sense that we hope they're almost at Bethlehem by the time they send them back because there's awkward silence the rest of the way home. And if if you're Ruth, that has to be a biting silence. I just pledge to give up everything for this lady, so much so that I've called the judgment of her God against me. And now she's not talking to me. Now, some have looked at Naomi a lot more positively than I am and just said she was convinced by Ruth and she was amiable the rest of the way back. Well, I think this was painful the rest of the way back. And I, I think that this demonstrates, I think Naomi demonstrates on a meta level how Israel relates to God's kindness over and over again. Israel over and over again seeks life and hope and blessing outside of the land from other gods. And then when there's sacrificial love demonstrated and when there's a promise of provision by the Lord to Israel, it's met with silence over and over again. I think as we read the larger Old Testament story, we can see Israel typified in Naomi. We see a nation that doesn't bless the other nations, a nation that doesn't remain faithful to the God and doesn't return to him. And over and over again, God then calls out non-Israelites to demonstrate faithfulness and steadfast love, to bring rescue and hope and healing. And that's exactly what's going on here. And I think that instead of just being critical of Naomi, we need to see ourselves as Naomi, to recognize where over and over again, there are people in our lives who demonstrate faithfulness to us and we spurn them. And that over and over again, we are offered the welcoming arms of Christ and, and time and time again, 
we meet that welcome, that call to come with silence. Verse 19, the two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival. And the, the local women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? So there's a buzz of excitement as they're entering into the town. And you need to remember that this is at least a decade after Naomi and her family had left, perhaps even longer. In 10 years, especially when it's riddled by a lost husband and lost children in travel and grief and in an ancient time, 10 years is going to change the physical appearance of somebody. Um, so the, these women excitedly ask, can this be Naomi? Is this her? Now, this reception is interesting to me, that they're, they're excited about her return. I, we sometimes wonder, are they pitying her as she comes back? Uh, there, there are uh, rabbinic traditions that the reason this family left Israel in the first place was because they were wealthy and they didn't want to share anything with their neighbors. But I, I don't know if that's the case. Regardless, this family didn't stay in solidarity and suffer through the famine with all of these people. And you can only imagine, is this people who, who was in the land when the Lord visited them with food, now this people is looking at this, this exile coming back with astonishment. Can this be Naomi, this, this older woman now? Naomi responds to their question don't call me Naomi. Now remember, Naomi means pleasant or the pleasant one. She says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me the pleasant one. Call me Mara or the bitter one. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter, she answered, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me pleasant since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me. Okay, again, I'm going to suggest that we need to listen to Naomi's words and hear them critically because I think there's a grain of truth in them, but I think there's also a great amount of blindness in them. The grain of truth is that the Lord has opposed her. The Yahweh, this covenantal name for the God of Israel, he has opposed her. But in that covenantal context, if Yahweh is opposing you, and really at any time in human history, if Yahweh is opposing you, what must you do? You must repent. And, and we've seen no repentance from her. And furthermore, over and over again in Israel's history, and especially during the time of the judges, you have these cycles where Israel is going wayward, and then they repent and God meets them with blessing. There's an example throughout Israel's history of repentance, God will restore. He is merciful and gracious and long-suffering. Well, instead of bellyaching about God opposing you, you ought to repent and believe in his goodness and call upon his mercy to visit you with grace. Well, we, we don't see that. We just see an accusation against God of his bitterness. In this way, Ruth is similar to Job. And in fact, in Job 27, Job uses the same language. The Lord has made me bitter. Now, I, I don't know how you read Job. Maybe I'm a cynical guy, but I just read Job as very often trying to justify himself, uh, especially in that text. Because later on in the final chapter, after God has answered him at length, Job says, you're right, I need to just be silent. 
Well, well, Ruth here has less to justify herself against because she is clearly, by, or Naomi has less to justify herself with because she's violated the covenant, but she's still accusing Yahweh and not pleading to him for mercy. She references here, the Almighty has made me bitter and the Almighty has afflicted me. This is, this is the name Shaddai, okay? You're probably familiar with this. You've heard El Shaddai, uh, God Almighty, these sorts of things. Well, this, this name for God is interesting. And throughout Genesis, whenever it's used, it's used in connection to fertility. And, and it, essentially that name in reference to the God of Israel is essentially dethroning all of the fertile, fertility gods of the nations around them. So remember over and over again, Israel partakes in Baal worship and it's almost always some fertility sort of worship practice that involves sexual immorality. Well, um, I, whenever El Shaddai, God Almighty is referenced, it's talking about the fact that God is the one who control, controls fertility, fertility of the womb and fertility of the fields. And, and Naomi left Israel because of a fallow field and now she's coming back without children and no hope of children. And so she's using this name of God to accuse him, the one who has control over field and famine and over fertility of the womb. And, and she's accusing him and saying, this God, the God who has control over this, he is the reason this happened. And in a way that's right, because she, she broke the covenant. But in a way, it's also so prideful of her to look at God and accuse him in this way. And, and it's an expression of disbelief in the promises that the God who can make a, an old woman, Sarah, be fertile and have a baby. It's, it's just not claiming any of the promises or recognizing the truth of God's kindness and his miraculous work in infertile wombs and in an infertile land to provide for his people. And, and so I think we should see this as an expression of faithlessness. I also think that we should critically hear this because while it is true in one way that she went away full with regard to having her family with her, she, she was leaving a place where she didn't have food. And now she's saying, I went away full, but then I came back empty. But the reality is there is someone standing right next to her as she's making this accusation against God who, who has just given her whole self in her whole life to providing for and caring for Naomi. That would be a slap in the face, I think, to be standing next to the person who just gave themselves over to you and said, the, the Lord has brought me back empty. I have nothing. That rubs us the wrong way. And it should. And once again, I think that we ought to see ourselves as that person who looks on occasions for joy and who looks on blessing from the Lord and disregards them altogether. Naomi does not count this as a blessing. She does not count this as an occasion for joy and she does not count this as a manifestation of life and hope from God that she doesn't deserve. Well, you and I, I think, well, if you're like me, you do this all the time, far more than you would even recognize. Now, later on in the story, uh, these women of Bethlehem are going to speak to Naomi once again. And they're going to say things like, God has provided a son for you. And in fact, Ruth is better than seven sons. Like you lost two sons. Ruth was better than seven sons. 
Now, now we'll, we'll get to that, but I think what that points out is we need people to speak into our lives and to help us learn to lament and to complain and to walk through bitter, challenging times with an eye towards the faithfulness of God instead of with an eye looking just on ourselves and what we've lost. Now, our friends and our, our community can be mistaken at times. We see that in the book of Job, right? Job's friends didn't get what was going on, and, and God rebukes them, and Job offered a sacrifice on their behalf. So friends can be wrong, but I, I think we need to learn from this that we cannot trust our interpretation of the events in our lives. You and I very often want to interpret the events in our lives in a particular way that's just about us and has nothing to do with God's actual work in redemptive history and in our lives. And, and we need to be cautioned against this. I think that whether it's the way that you respond to the challenges of COVID, whether it's a positive response or a negative response, don't make it all about you. And if you find yourself not recognizing any occasions for joy or blessings in the hardship of life, you need to talk to someone who will prayerfully help you see God's kindness and blessing in your life. And then I think we should all take a further step back and try to say, what is God doing at large in this world that I'm not crediting him for? Well, we recognize that from the famine to the return to the land, to the son that Ruth will have, God is doing something in the redemptive history of the entire world that Naomi doesn't even have a thought of. She, she just has no idea about this. And we can't fault her for that. She, she can't see everything. But it should be humbling to us to know that we interpret events in the world and we forget God's work entirely. And in then we also fail to recall the faithfulness of God and the almightiness of God to transform the worst, most bitter situations in our lives and in the world for his good. And we're thankful for later New Testament authors who are going to say things like, God will work all things together for good. Uh, he's going to turn out of what men mean for evil, very good and blessed things. So as we look at this third week of Ad Advent, the theme of which is joy, let's reflect on the obvious things that we have cause for joy, but let's also try to more critically and more uh, wisely evaluate these hard things in our lives and see if they ought to, in fact, be considered occasions for joy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the book of Ruth. We thank you for those who have gone before us, who have walked through really challenging things, and we're grateful for both the positive and the negative examples that are before us. We're grateful most of all, though, for Christ who pulls us into his joy and the Christ who redeems our hardship and the, the Christ who brings hope and life where death has reigned always. We ask that you would tie us into that story and that you would allow us to interpret the events of our life in light of that story, of, of the Christ who experienced the bitter wrath that you poured out on him, who drank that cup to the end. And may we look at him as the one who suffered these things for the joy that was set before him. And may we find our joy in that joy. 
And as we walk the bitterness of this life, and as we go through the trials of this life, may we not allow them to convince us that you are unfaithful, but instead, would you allow them to point us to Christ to experience more trial and bitterness than we would ever experience? And would you allow us to be convinced that you have proved that you love us by sending us Jesus? And would you allow us to be convinced that there will be a fullness of life that we begin to participate in now and that we will participate in forever because of Christ's resurrection? It's in his name that we pray. Amen.